So 2 Peter chapter 3, and I'll start here at verse 1. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last day scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, we thank you for the precious word. We thank you that contained in that word is all truth that is sufficient for all life and godliness. We thank you that you have given us this revelation. Lord, may we not move off that pillar. May we hold steadfast to it. Give us wisdom now as we hear. May we be discerning hearers and um, take it not for what I say, but Lord, may we test all things, hold fast to that which is true. May we be Bereans and study the scriptures. And Lord, we pray that indeed we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So as I said earlier, our text is verse 9, which presents probably one of the most challenging verses in all of the Bible. So that is, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. But is long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
And don't forget, we've been continuing on through Second Peter here, and last time we obviously looked at verse 8, and this morning we will be looking at verse 9. I have four points to bring out from this verse, and they are these. The weight challenged, the weight explained, the weight satisfied, and the weight applied. And this all has to do with waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ again. And that's why all these points are around that theme. So first of all, the weight challenged. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness. How many Christians have you heard quote this verse like this? The Lord is not willing that any should perish. Have you heard that before? Maybe you've said it yourself and you've said it to someone else. But how many of you or have you heard quote the entire verse and explain the verse in its context in 2 Peter chapter 3? Usually that doesn't happen. We must remember what is the context here. The context is the challenge with respect to the coming of Jesus Christ. Where is he? Why has he not yet returned? He promised he would come again, and he hasn't. And so if he hasn't, his word is null and void. And so the scoffers say, don't worry about judgment. It doesn't matter how you live, because he's not coming again. The evidence is clear. And we looked at a lot of this as we went through the earlier verses. We saw last time in verse 8 the idea of the um, apparent delay being grounded, Peter does, in the unique relationship that God has with time. We saw last time that God is over time, that he is not affected by time, that God is not changed by our changing circumstances. Instead, that God sovereignly unfolds everything that takes place in history because he is the Lord of time. And that sets the stage for this difficult verse 9. God's ways are constant and unswerving. And so building on this, Peter says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Notice, first of all, it says the Lord Who is this Lord? Well, he is the God of the Old Testament that promised the day of the Lord. But throughout this letter, Peter has applied the term the Lord to the Lord Jesus Christ because it is Jesus that is coming again in glory. It is the return of Jesus that is in question. So notice, first of all, the charges that he's slack. The idea in the Greek for that word is that he's loitering. He's tardy. He's slow. Some people would think as if God is dilly-dallying in the heavens, even potentially holding out a prospect of not fulfilling his promises. And that's the charge. In fact, many people alive today think Christianity is bonkers because he's not come again. And he hasn't come for 2,000 years. So it's a very real and current charge. Now, Peter, notice how he says is he talks about the source of this charge as some men Count slackness. Now that could refer to weak believers within the church. But most likely I think it's referring to the scoffers. Could be scoffers sitting among the believers. But they are scoffers who are unbelievers. Now we can't miss in the text the word as some men count slackness. That word count. Because the idea of count in the original language is the idea of being a judge 
as deeming something a certain way. It is taking authority to make a judgment, to count something a certain way of thinking. And in this case, man brashly puts God in the dock and the word of God is being judged by man. And mankind is saying, God, you are guilty because you're taking too long. You see, impatience is fertile soil for presumption and pride. Oh, and we're so quickly impatient, aren't we? Perhaps you have little room in your life for God's timing. You think you deserve better. Surely, my life, the way it's carved out, I don't like it. God should have treated me better. Maybe you've been crying out to God in the midst of struggle. You've been praying and seeking Him and trying to follow Him, and your life is still difficult. The circumstances are still not panning out the way you wanted them to be panning out. Perhaps it's the financial strain. Perhaps it's your job. It's been difficult. Perhaps it's something that's happening with the grandchildren. Perhaps it's your health. Perhaps it's something that's happening in your own marriage. And you've prayed and you've sought. You've been faithful, you think. And nothing is happening. And now, you might not say this out loud, but you think it. You in your mind start to question God. Oh, it's so easy when things don't go our way to question the Almighty with some sort of failure on his part. In some way, we charge him with being inconsistent or unfaithful. And the devil whispers lies into our minds, and we start to believe them. And once you start to believe the lies, the feelings will follow Because what you believe about God affects your feelings. Did you come this morning depressed? Did you come this morning in agony? Did you come this morning with all kinds of feelings of worry and anxiousness? It is because of what you believe about God. And these men don't believe God keeps his word. So is God slack? Is God inconsistent? Does God change his mind as men change their minds? God condemns the wicked in Psalm 50, verse 21, this way. He says, Thou thoughtest, or you thought, that I was altogether such a one as thyself. We turn God into man. And then we start to judge him as man. Is the sovereign of the universe to be accounted as one of us? No, God says this, Numbers 23. It says, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. That means change his ways. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? That is what God says about his sovereign purposes. So what should we do instead of charging God with slackness? How should we respond to the fact that he hasn't come again? We should humbly trust his word and be patient in waiting for his ways his timing, his purposes. The Bible says it is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Do you get that word? Quietly wait. Let's bite our tongues when we start to think of charging God with not holding his word.
That brings us to the second point, the weight explained, where the Bible says, but is long-suffering to usward. You see, Peter, instead of charging God with slackness, he actually honors God with being long-suffering. You see the change? The scoffers mock him. Peter honors him in his word. He is long-suffering. In the Greek, the contrast couldn't be sharper and more stark. Now, the word long-suffering, if your version says patience, patience doesn't quite get close to it. The word to suffer long, you can hear in it, to suffer, to bear, and to do it very long. The idea is here of patience in bearing the offenses and injuries of others. It means to be slow to avenge, slow to anger, and slow to punish when he has every right to punish us. In his great self-revelation to Moses, do you remember how God revealed himself? When Moses is hiding in the cleft of the rock and the Lord passed by and proclaims his name, you remember that? And it says this, The Lord, the Lord, God merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. The long-suffering character of God is actually the reason Jonah gives why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. Remember that? He was told, go to Nineveh, Assyria, the arch enemies of Israel, and he didn't go. He fled to Tarshish, and he eventually goes back, and you know what he says? O Lord, Chapter 4 here of Jonah. O Lord, was this not my saying when I was yet in my country, in Israel? He says, Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, and merciful, and slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. So the very character of God of the Old Testament is his patient, long-suffering, slow to anger, kindness. And that is the way Peter explains why Jesus has not come back yet. It's because God is so incredibly patient in bearing our sins and our weaknesses. Oh, that we should honor him for waiting and praise his name for being so patient with us. That brings me to the third point, the weight satisfied. Now here's where it gets a little bit thicker and more difficult in the text. It says, not willing that any should perish. This is the most controversial part of the verse and of probably Second Peter and much of the Bible. There are two major views as to how to interpret the rest of this verse. And I have got to say there are good theologians on both sides. I spent hours looking at both sides. And so more than in other sermons, I will carefully expound both views. At the end, I will give my view on this. The first view, and one that has exegetical clout, as it were, is this view. It means this, that God does not will... That any human being, anyone in mankind, is lost. And his long-suffering, his bearing long, gives ample opportunity for people to repent and be saved. Okay, so he is not willing that any human being be lost, and therefore he's long-suffering, and so on. This view is embraced and can be 
very well embraced by both what we would call Calvinists and Arminians, to use some terms here. Arminians will say that the gift of salvation is held out to all, but God's will is limited by man's choice to refuse. And because man refuses, God's will is not satisfied. The Calvinists, the Reformed view, agree that the gift of salvation is held out to all. All sinners are generally called to come to Christ and repent in the preaching of the gospel. But the Calvinists would go on and say, but it is the effectual call of God, the spiritual new birth in the sinner that makes the new birth come alive and receive Jesus Christ that they want to repent only because the Spirit makes them willing. He enables them by opening their eyes. The Bible says this with respect to that. Ephesians 2, 1. And you hath he quickened, that means made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, this gets to a hard question. So if God is willing that all come to repentance, we know there are many, many, many people who do not come to repentance. So how can we understand the willingness of God to save everybody, knowing that everybody will not be saved? How can this be? God is all-powerful. He's the one that could do it, and he does not save everyone, even though he wants to save everyone. So here's where it gets a little bit more difficult and put on your thinking hats for a second. To help understand this, Reformed theologians have identified two distinct revelations of God's will in the Bible. They are these, these are big words, but I'm going to explain them. They are the decretive will of God and the preceptive will of God. I will explain them. The decretive will of God speaks simply of what God decrees, what he ordains. That means what actually happens. That is, I will this and it will happen. This is the idea of when James says, when he says, for that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. That is what God decrees. He does what he wants to do. Now, it is unknown to us what that will is until things actually happen, which is why we shouldn't be presumptuous. That's the one side. That's the decretive will of God, and it's in many, many Bible verses. But stepping over to this side, we also have the preceptive will of God. That means the commanded will of God, what he wants us to do. He wants us to repent. He wants us to turn to him. He wants us to live by these standards. God's will is that we have no other gods before him, that we love him, and that we live according to his will. So we've got two wills that are identified in the Bible. But this will, no matter what happens, that is what he has caused to come to pass, this side can be rejected. Because when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, what does man do? Spurn his will, reject his will, and have other gods. Now we might quibble with these terms, preceptive and decretive wills, 
But both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, there are words that emphasize one or two of them. So this is very clear in the original languages. The terms may overlap, but there is distinction. And we need to know that. Now, stepping back for a second, you might be thinking, well, if there's two wills in God, then God is bipolar. We've got to be careful here. Because we must realize that there is actually only one will in God. Well, hold on. I just said there was two. How do we understand it? There is only one will in God. But the two is how he has revealed himself. It's how we can understand him who the Bible says is incomprehensible, totally sovereign, and above us. His thoughts are not as our thoughts. His ways are not as our ways. And God perfectly accomplishes whatever he wants without the slightest imperfection. And so I will say this. We cannot deny either of them, and we can't confuse the two of them, But as mere human beings, there is mystery here. And we receive them from the word of God. That is, we have to set that back as the skeleton to understand in this verse. So all that to say, if this verse teaches that God wills all mankind to be saved, then this particular verse must refer to his preceptive or his commanded desired will. It is what he would have us do, which he would have us repent. He commands all men to repent, and that's what he wants. Now, this is taught elsewhere in the Bible. So this is theologically very right. Ezekiel 33.11 says this, As I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. Why will ye die, O house of Israel? So God wants Israel to return to him, to repent. And they don't. Many of them don't. And so this is identified in the Bible. And that is one way to understand this verse. And though I agree with the theology I just explained, I do not personally believe that this particular verse is teaching that theology. But I want you to be aware of it. Because there are very solid theologians who have taken that view. And I wrestled with that. Here's the other view. This is a view I take. And I will back it up with an an analogy. Have you ever been on a tour bus? On tour, and you have to visit at various stops. Perhaps for us, it's been farms. We go from farm to farm, visiting crops or something like that. And when we're done visiting the one place, the tour guide says, everybody back on the bus. And then just before the bus starts driving, he says, are we all here? Now, we know that when he says everybody back on the bus, or are we all here, he doesn't mean, is everybody in the world on the bus? That wouldn't fit. And that's not his intent when he said everybody and all. He had a narrow scope in mind when it's those people who were part of the tour. So we have to ask, in this text, who are the subjects of the verse? Does Peter tell us? Who they are. Well, he does. Notice that it says that 
all should come to repentance. And that is the same group, if you look carefully at the text, that is the any that should perish. And they are the same group to whom God is long-suffering. Because we have three words, right? We have all come to repentance, any that should perish, and these are the recipients of God's long-suffering in this verse. Now, who is that? Does the Bible tell us? Now, many Bibles here, if you're not reading a New King James or a King James, will say you, okay? It'll read like this. Um, But God is patient or long-suffering to you, not willing that anyone should perish. But the text that we use and that we believe is the Bible itself, the original, says us, unto usward. So throughout this letter, what does Peter do? He distinguishes two groups. He says, they and us. Who are the they? They are the scoffers. They are the false teachers. Who are the us? Well, the Bible tells us in Peter who the us are. He keeps bringing the us up. He says in chapter 1, verse 1, he says to them that have obtained like precious faith with us. The us are those who have faith. And particularly look at verse 2. If you just turn back in chapter 1, verse 2, what it says, 2 and 3, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of our God and of Jesus Christ our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. These aren't the scoffers. These aren't the unbelievers. This is a particular group of believers. These are the people who were called. Well, remember I've talked about the effectual calling. These are effectually called. Peter will call them in his first letter very clearly the elect. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So now we need to step back for a second and ask, okay, so if the us are the elect, the beloved... We also have to remember what's in question. What's in question? The promise of his return, right? Where's the promise of his coming? Well, we saw that word as well. Look at verse 3 and 4. Same chapter 1. Because it says in verse 4, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious, what? Promises. Who are the promises for? The elect, for the people of God. And if you couple that together with what we saw, it is the promises that were in question and the promises are given to the elect, to his people, to his beloved. In fact, I did a little word search here on the word promise, epangelia in the Bible, in the Greek. And every time it is used, it's always positive. It is always to the benefit of the hearer. In fact, out of 52, out of 53 times, it is always God promising blessing to his own. And the only other time is one man blessing another. That's it. And so it's always the positive side. It's not meant for the wicked. The promises are to the usward, the believer, the chosen. And so the way I read this verse is this. Christ's promised return is coordinated by God's long-suffering character until all the elect have come to repentance. 
not willing that any of the elect should perish, but that all of the elect will come to repentance, which means that we're not talking on the preceptive will of God. We're talking on the decreed will of God, that which will come to pass. Now, you might be thinking, okay, that was a lot of exegesis, and that was heavy. I want to prove from the rest of this chapter that that reading makes sense in the immediate context as well. Look at verse 13 of chapter 3. Nevertheless, we, there's the same group, looking to his, what? His promise. Look for the new heavens and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. The scoffer's not looking for the promise. It's the believer that's looking for the promise. So clearly Peter links the faith in the promise to the believer, to the elect. The other proof is two verses later. Look at verse 15. An account that the long-suffering of our Lord, you see the link? The long-suffering of the Lord is what? Salvation. Salvation. He links God's long-suffering to the elect with the salvation of the elect. And so Peter, not only throughout the whole letter, says who the us are, he links the long-suffering to the elect and their salvation, and he links the promise to the elect and their salvation. So I think the entire letter is thick with two groups, the scoffers, the scoffers who reject him, and the believers, the called, the chosen, those who have obtained precious faith, who will be saved, because God is long-suffering that they all come. Now, to add to that, because I'm building a case here, because so many people take the verse the other way. I need to build this carefully. To add to that, in the Greek, there are two words for the word will. We only know one. When we say God wills this, God wills this, we only think of one word. But in the Greek, there's actually two words. Thelema, in the Greek, is used of both God and men, and it is usually about his preceptive, commanded will that God wills us to obey him. God wills us to repent. God wills this. The other word in the Greek that's used is bulema, and that's the one used here. It's rare, and it means deliberate intent, premeditated, purposeful decision. So God is not willing there is the word purpose. He has not purposed that any should perish. And so the final link in the argument would be the verse that comes before it. Verse 8, we saw last time, teaches that God's purposes of time and history never change. He is unaffected by time, and so his will that the elect come to him are also not affected by time. And so I will conclude this difficult exegesis with this statement. I agree with the noteworthies of Theodore Beza, Matthew Henry, Francis Turretin, John Owen, John Gill, to name a few, and R.C. Sproul, who said this, therefore, the any and the us are the elect. That was the hardest part of the message. So if your head is spinning, I'm sorry, but I had to do that. And if you have questions, by all means, come up to me afterwards and we can talk about it. So that brings me to the last point, the weight applied. Because really the question is, well, okay, if that's what it means, what does that mean for us? 
What does it really mean? And now I will get to the application level. So first of all, it means this. Look in the text again. Not willing that any should what? Perish. Perish. Perish is destruction. That is real. Generation after generation of people are born, and God bears with great patience the thanklessness, the idolatry, the murders, the heresies, the abortions, the abominations, the hatred, the pride of mankind. God is bearing long with a broken, broken world. But when Christ returns, and he will, then all of the unrepentant will be thrown into darkness. And if that is you this morning, if you are sitting here this morning unrepentant and not turning to Jesus Christ, you will never again see a spark of light ever. Oh, think of the horror bound up in that word perish. Perhaps you've heard somebody say, oh, their life is a living hell. Oh, the worst of what this world has endured is an understatement to the hell that awaits those who reject Jesus Christ Almighty. Martin Luther wrote this. He said this, the day of judgment will not last for a moment only, but will stand throughout eternity and will thereafter never come to an end. He said, constantly will the damned be judged. Constantly will they suffer pain. And constantly will they be in a fiery oven. That is, they will be tormented within by supreme distress and tribulation. The perishing is real. It is horrendous. And for anybody here, I do not wish that upon my worst enemy. Please take serious what is impending upon those who reject Jesus Christ. Another application. God suffers long with his elect because that is the immediate context as we saw. In a world where nobody deserves grace, God measures time in such a way that not one of those He wills to be lost, will be lost. Oh, think of how many years God has been patient with us, with me, with you, with with believers. How many years haven't we provoked his patience? How many times haven't our thoughts been selfish and demanding and given to unbelief? And yet God did not destroy us. You know, sometimes we have to be patient when things are beyond our control and maybe that's going on in your life right now and something's beyond your control and you have to be patient. But think of this, with God, everything is in his control and his patience is completely within his right to choose to act or not to act. God can always act, he can always execute and yet he forbears with us. Oh, even think as believers, even now as Christians, daily our Heavenly Father bears with our chiding, with our insolence, with our complaints, with our provocations. Perhaps you, this week, fell into a sin you thought was long history. I haven't done that for a long time. That one was beat, and it came back with a vengeance. Oh, think of the patience of God, that He is gentle with us. 
and that he bears long with us in light of that, and that God would allow us to daily come to him, to daily repent, to daily confess our sins, to be daily availing ourselves of the mercy and the forgiveness of God. That is because he is long-suffering. Another application would be this. Time is regulated by election. That's quite a thought. Time is regulated by election. Because God, without compromising one iota of his justice, our great God has given this time, this space in history for the ingathering of his elect. Had it not been for the long-suffering of God, the precious gospel would not have come to you or to me. We would not have known him. If Jesus came back earlier, if Jesus came a hundred years ago, you and I would not be in the glories of heaven when Jesus comes back. And so Peter teaches us that the duration of this world is circumscribed or bounded by the salvation of the elect. We don't know if we will have great-great-grandchildren, whether more earthly kingdoms will come and go, whether there will be more wars, more famines, more struggles, more springtime, more harvest. But we do know this. The future of God's people and the future of time is bound up perfectly in the sovereign hands of God. Acts 15, 18 says this, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. And so that brings me to another application. All of God's elect will come in. Jesus says this in John 10, he says, And other sheep have I which are not of this fold. Them also must I bring, and they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one fold and one shepherd. You see, time will carry on until all of God's sheep have been gathered into the fold. And that means this. That means the word election is not some abstract concept. No, it means it is particular. Sinners are saved. People are saved in particular by the sovereign measure of God Almighty. You see, God's long-suffering, bearing this wicked, wicked, hell-deserving world is the soil on which his blessings to his children take shape. Think about this. It was in time, in history, that God promised redemption. It was in time that God drew you and me to himself. It was in time that we were justified. It was in time that he united us to his son. It was in time that the spirit applied the blood of Christ to our account. It was in time that we were conformed to the image of his likeness and our being conformed to him. But it was without time that all of this was purposed. In fact, turn with me please to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. How it reads, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now look how it goes. According to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie, his immutability, 
promised, you see the word promise, before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. You see all of these terms bound up together, eternal life. Time, salvation, preaching, promise, elect, they're all bound up in that little opening that Paul gives to Titus. Every concept that Peter talks about is in those verses. And so meditate on God's patience with us. And let us use this time that we have. How many days do you have left? Perhaps you're really old and this morning and you know your time is crunching short. Perhaps you will die walking out of church. Young people, don't expect tomorrow. Tomorrow is a gift from God, but use this time that God has given to battle sinful thinking, to cultivate holiness, to grow in trust, and in the sufferings and trials that God places in our lives to seek How can I glorify him now in time and prepare myself to be more fit for heaven's glories that I may more shine today with heaven's magnificence? Which brings me to the last application of this thick verse. It is this. It says entering in, right? That all may repent. Because maybe you've heard what this message more or less says. And you're saying, well, frankly, election is fatalistic. You can't help it. You do what you do, but you're chosen or you're not chosen. That's not true. Fatalism has no room for a personal God. In fatalism, everything is blind, random, and impersonal. And it's just a force. That's fatalism. And concepts like love and mercy and justice and virtues are really just pointless. And in fact, I'll tell you what's fatalistic. Evolution is fatalistic. Because in evolution, we're going nowhere, we came from nowhere, and nothing matters. That's fatalistic. You're just determined by your DNA and the collisions of molecules. And what you think, how you think, what you feel, and justice means nothing. Evolution is impersonal. God is very personal. And God, the Bible tells us, gives us choice. He gives us responsibility. And while he orders all things according to his plan, he calls us to respond. So God is not fatalistic at all. We need to wipe that off of the map. But then the question that remains is this. How do I know I am elect? That is the most important question you can ask yourself. How do I know I am elect? How do I know I am saved? Because many, many people have read scripture and wrestled with that question. How do I know I am elect? Well, this is where we need to, again, read the whole verse. And it becomes very precious when we look at the whole verse. Because what does it say? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, again, this word, Peter's just the master at taking obscure words and putting them in the text. The word for should come is very rare. It's only used 12 times in the entire New Testament. And it means make room for, to contain, to hold. And so the idea is this. 
we see that the long-suffering God waits until the hearts of all of the elect find room for repentance. This gets interesting. The word repentance. Perhaps you've heard it countless times. Do you really know what repentance means? What does repentance mean? The Greek word is metanoia. It literally means to change one's mind or purpose. It stresses, get this, decision by the whole man to turn around. You get that? You see, we have had years of the church abusing the word repentance to mean something like this. Oh, you need to repent. Oh, I'm sorry I'm a sinner. I believe in Jesus. And they go on living the way they always lived. And Jesus just became a band-aid. Jesus just became therapeutic. Jesus was like that ticket in Monopoly to get you out of jail so you could keep living your life. That's not repentance. That's not biblical. We need to wipe that idea from the map. Repentance in the Bible actually means you want to turn. Perhaps you've sat under the preaching of the word for years. Young people, perhaps you've grown up in the church and it's all you've ever heard, but you've never chosen to act. Now, we've got to be careful here. Because people can start to trust in their repentance. And that's dangerous. That's not what repentance is. Because actually, biblical repentance is the polar opposite of self-trust. It is abandoning everything of yourself. It is abandoning the idols and the crutches and the weakness and the impoverty of your flesh and yourself and all the merits you have accumulated. Paul says all these things I count but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him not having mine own righteousness but the righteousness which is of God by faith and repentance turns away from that and turns to Jesus and loves Jesus and accepts Jesus and receives Jesus and lives for Jesus. That's repentance. It's a life of turning, forsaking, abandoning, and going to Christ as your all and living for him. Now, what does this all mean? It means this. You and I cannot sit idly by this morning. You can't just say, oh, I just heard another sermon this morning. That was okay. It was okay, a little confusing. You see, the gospel call is not an offer. It is a proclamation. It is not a mere invitation. It is an announcement. He is coming again to judge the living and the dead. It is the gospel which calls all men, Paul says, everywhere to repent and to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You see, A.W. Pink many years ago said this well. He said, in the gospel, God simply announces the terms upon which men may be saved Namely, repentance and faith, and indiscriminately, all are called or commanded to fulfill the terms. Turn to Jesus. What does that mean? It means Christ must be preached far and wide. It means that by faith in him, the elect who are scattered throughout the globe and throughout time will 
come. Missions exists because people and his elect will come to Christ and they need to hear the gospel. Christians are commanded to spread this gospel indiscriminately all over the world, but only God knows his elect from all eternity. And get this, we come to know the elect when they repent. They will come. The Bible says, Psalm 110, verse 3, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. What does this mean? It means missions is not futile. It is not up to us to turn hearts, to convert people. It is up to us to be faithful. But it also means that missions will never be futile. It will be 100% effective. It means evangelizing your children is not pointless and fatalistic. It actually is a vital means of calling them to repentance. And if they are the chosen, they will come. So I'm going to wrap this all up with the question again. How do you know you are elect? How? In responding in faith and obedience, repentance, turning away from yourself and coming to Christ. That is how you know. It is by obeying the word of God and embracing the free, rich righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is how you know it. Listen to what Jesus said himself on this question. He says, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. That's election. And then he says this, and him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. So what is it? Come, come as you are. Come as a sinner and turn to Jesus Christ. I will close with the Apostle Paul here about time, eternity, and coming. The Apostle Paul says this, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You are living in the now. How will you and I respond? Amen. Holy God, we come before you. What a mighty word. What a great Savior. What a sovereign God we serve. Oh, forgive us for small thoughts of you. Forgive us, Lord, for the trust in our crutches, in our ingenuity, and thinking we understand you, Lord. May we be humble and turn to you as the frail, weak people we are, receiving the grace of Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.